You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at redrocksbaptist. Identity is a hot-button cultural issue today. And this is a term that perhaps you've heard thrown around a lot. Maybe it's in the news or you hear it in the media. What is identity? Identity is simply who we are. It's who we are. Do you know your identity? Hopefully you're not pulling out your wallet at this point to look at your license. Oh, yeah, right. That's who I am. Uh, Each of us has several identities. For me, I am a man as opposed to a woman. I am a son as well as a husband and a father. I'm a pastor. I'm a student perpetually to the chagrin of my wife, a student, a cyclist, a coffee snob, a runner, a travel lover, and an avid reader. And I'm sure I could come up with more if you gave me more time. And each one of those things describes who I am and shapes who I am. And yet I'm also an image bearer of God, just as you are. I'm a sinner, just like you are. And I'm a born again Christian. And of all these identities, one has to really take preference or precedent over the others. And for me, the one that defines me more than anything else is my relationship to Jesus. I know many of you would agree with me with that. I have been united to Jesus by faith, and my identity as a Christian shapes everything about me. At least it should. Now, our world has a different position, a different belief about which identity is most important. Many men find their identity in their jobs. They look to their job to give them meaning in life, which makes a career change just devastating because they lost their identity. Many women look to their role as a mother or defined by their motherhood. So when the kids leave home, they, they lose direction in life and they're lost. Feminists in our culture say that womanhood is their most important identity. The LGBTQ plus movement says their sexuality is their identity, which means that the thing that most defines them is who they're romantically attracted to or what they do with their reproductive organs. The Bible's vision for identity is much greater than that. The Bible teaches that every person is made in the image of God, every person. And therefore, every life from the moment of conception is worthy of protection and respect. Every person is also a sinner. There is none righteous, no, not one. And yet, because we are sinners, that actually qualifies us to be saved because the Bible says that only sinners can be redeemed of their sins, Romans 3, 22 through 24. And the Bible says that when a person believes in Jesus as their Savior, they receive a new identity. They become a new creation. That new identity is what defines them more than anything else that's true of them. And really, one way to look at the Christian life, that the daily growth and the daily walk with the Lord, is that we are striving by the grace of God to live out our new identity through our relationship to Christ. Each day is an opportunity to live out our new identity through Christ. But the fact is, we struggle to live up to our new identity. Many Christians don't act like Christians. And if We wanted to, all of us, can give examples this week of how we did not act like a Christian should because we still sin. Well, there are a number of reasons that we struggle to live up to our new identity. One is that many Christians don't know their identity in Christ. They they don't know who they are. It would be like being in our world and losing your wallet and forgetting who you are. 
the Bible, including the book of Colossians, is full of references to our identity. And, and the fact is we need to hear more teaching on this topic. We need to hear teaching about who we are in Christ, which is why we're spending our time on this topic today. A second reason we struggle to live up to our new identity is we forget who we are. It's easy to go through our day and just flat out forget that we've been redeemed. In the daily grind, it's, it's easy just to, to let old habits take over and go on living like we used to. Third, we fall back into our old way of living because our, our sin nature doesn't go away. It tempts us, it draws us back to the things that we used to do or the things that are opposed to God. And so our flesh causes us to not live out our new identity in Christ. Here's another reason, two more. Fourth, because we still sin after being born again, sometimes we doubt our identity has been changed at all. Doubt and discouragement, despair can cause us to not live up to our new identity. And then we have to also admit that it's hard to apply these truths. We struggle to live out our new identity because it's spiritually difficult. It takes a lot of effort to think about how my relationship with Christ changes the way I live, changes the way I think, changes my choices. So the question I want to raise is how do we live up to our new identity? And I think there really are, are two simple steps. They're simple in concept. They are difficult to live out. The first simple step is we have to learn who we are as we renew our minds. Romans 12.2 says that, that transformation comes as a result of making our minds new, of renewing our minds. And so the key to spiritual growth is not simply doing more things or living differently on the outside. It's having a completely different way of thinking and believing on the inside. We have to study the scriptures to learn how Jesus has changed us. And then we ask for God's grace to live consistently with who we are now. Because we are true in Christ, and yet our daily lives don't match that very often. And so we are asking for the help, the grace of God, to live consistently with who we are now. And that's exactly what this little passage in Colossians 1 teaches us. We saw last week that God acted dramatically and decisively through Jesus' death on the cross to completely and irreversibly, praise God, change our identity. God acted in three ways. Verse 12, he qualified us for an eternal inheritance. Verse 13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness. And then also in verse 13, he transferred us into Christ's kingdom. Jesus' death redeemed us by his blood and forgave our sins. That's what verse 14 is all about. And so today, we will focus on the truth that our identity has been completely changed. If you have come to faith in Christ and repented of your sins, you are completely changed. Whether you feel like it or not, that's the truth. And these three little verses actually show us seven ways that our identity has changed. Yes, there are seven truths about us. And, and, and as I've prayed over this message and studied this week, I, I really want to, you to grasp what our identity is in Christ. Because this is such a cultural hot-button issue. It, it's, it's a topic that we hear a lot about, but maybe don't actually hear a lot about, if you know what I mean. It, it's in the cultural uh, wavelength, and it's on the radar, but we don't actually study it a lot. And so we're going to split this in half. We're going to take three identities this week and do four next week. 
And, and my prayer is very simple. My prayer is that as a result of our time in the Word today, you would live consistently with who you are in Christ. That as you go through this week, you would live consistently with who you are in Christ. And so the first identity marker is in verse 12. Let's read verse 12 again. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. The first one here is believers are qualified heirs. God qualified us to be heirs of an eternal inheritance. And that, that inheritance is waiting for us in heaven. It is reserved, kept by the power of God, undefiled. It can't be taken away from us. It's untouchable. And we know that we, we didn't do anything to deserve this. You can't earn your way to heaven. That's why God qualified you. Jesus has met all the conditions necessary for us so we can receive his work and go to heaven through him. And this concept of, of being qualified is a little foreign to us. I was trying to explain this to my two older boys this week. We were learning these three verses, memorizing them, and, and they had no clue what qualified meant. In fact, they pronounce it qualified, like the animal qualified, and we had a fun time trying to figure that one out. Uh, we are not turning into marsupials. Uh, <laughs> we are becoming qualified for heaven. And so to illustrate that, I they're playing upward basketball this year, which is a hoot in and of itself. And so I asked them, what did you have to do to be able to play basketball? And there are two qualifications, actually. One is that they have to be of the right age for their division. They have to be kindergarten to second grade. The second is that they have to pay the registration fee. And they quickly recognized that they were the right age. But I said, well, why are you playing? You didn't pay the money. You don't have any money. You can't pay the money. And they said, well, yeah, that's true. How are we playing? They said, well, mom and dad paid for you. And they were like, oh, cool, thanks. Uh, and, and I think in a small way, this pictures the qualifications to get into heaven. Because to get into heaven, you either have to be perfect, which no one is, or you have to have someone else qualify you. So being a sinner actually qualifies you to be saved. So, so we're all sinners. We're all qualified to be saved in that sense, but only if we allow the payment of someone else to take place on our behalf. Just like we did for our boys, of course, we're not going to tell them they have to pay for themselves. They're five and seven. That's what Jesus did for us. He took what we could not do and paid the entry fee for us to get into heaven and so if we are qualified by Jesus because of his work, there are at least, I've got four that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about. There are four implications of it. First, you should never doubt God's care for you. God has provided eternity for you. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. He will never turn his back on you now. He will certainly give you everything you need. This is the logic of Romans 8, 31 to 34. If he that did not spare his own son, but delivered him up from us all, how will he not also with him give us freely all things? In trials and in hardships, it's easy to wonder, is God really for me? He feels distant from me. Does God really care? We saw in our Sunday school lesson this morning. And the fact is that if God qualified you by sending Jesus to pay for your sin, then God is for you. Always, he is for you. We are qualified heirs. Now that, that part about being an heir with our inheritance waiting in heaven, uh, 
that, that leads to a question. Since our inheritance is yet to come in the future, does it affect us today? Or is it just kind of like, well, someday we'll get there and I'll enjoy it then? Well, actually, it does affect us today. Uh, last week, I gave the illustration of being uh, a, a heir to Warren Buffett's will. So let's build on that, okay? So pretend with me that you get a letter in the mail from Warren Buffett saying you get a 1% stake of his fortune, which at $1.1 million, your 1% share is like $11 million or $11 billion. My, my math is all uh, goofy here. One, let me just read my notes, okay? 1% of his fortune would be about $1.1 billion for you, okay? Well, can you spend that money now? Anyone? No, you can't spend that money now. You don't have it yet. But let's say that after naming you a beneficiary in his will, Mr. Buffett calls you to tell you that he's invested the money for you and you could start living off the interest now. And even if you get a measly 4% interest, that's $44 million a year to live on. Will that cover incidentals for anyone? I mean, that's so much money, I wouldn't know what to do with it, truthfully. And we can all joke about, oh, I'd find a way to, to spend it. I, but can you? I mean, that's so much money. I definitely would have everything I need and anything I wanted and I would have the resources to help others as well. And in a similar way, our identity as qualified heirs affects us right now because we can access the riches of God's grace in this life already. In the kindness of God, the incidentals of life are covered by the riches of his grace toward us right now. Let me make it really practical. What do you need? When you have a difficult choice, maybe you're facing a, a something you need guidance on, that you're praying and saying, Lord, I need you to show me your will. I need wisdom. Do you have to wait till heaven to get wisdom? No. James 1 says that if you ask God for wisdom in faith, he will give it to you. When something is weighing on your heart and every day you wake up with your mind spinning at 8,000 RPMs, do you need to wait till heaven to have peace in your soul? No. Jesus said, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. When you're weary with caring for a loved one or drained by the responsibilities on your plate from day to day and you need strength, do you have to just gut it out on your own till you get into heaven? No. The Bible says that the God of all grace will strengthen you and establish you and comfort you. And we could go on and on and on. Because in the kindness of God, anything you need in this life has already been provided for you because you're a qualified heir. Now, to take it a little different direction, a third implication is that if our inheritance is in heaven, we shouldn't love the fool's gold that we see all around us. We should invest in spiritual riches because that's the nature of our inheritance. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Does your budget reflect your status as an heir? If your inheritance is in heaven, then why do we cling so tightly to little pieces of green paper with some dead guy's face on it? We need to take a long, serious look at our relationship to earthly riches. 
And there's a whole lot to say here, so I'm going to try to keep it concise. But I would encourage you to set aside 10% of your income to invest in the Lord's work, to give back a tithe, a 10% to what God is doing. And now some of you are going to say, but 10% isn't commanded in the New Testament. That's true. (laughs) It's not. But 10% was the standard of giving in the Old Testament even before the law, Genesis 14. And I believe it provides a target to shoot for because though the New Testament doesn't command 10%, it actually does something far more. So if you want to argue, well, the New Testament doesn't command me to give 10%, you're actually putting yourself in a, you're, you're committing yourself to giving more because grace giving is the New Testament pattern for giving. Grace giving is explained by Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And his overarching message is that through our relationship to Christ, we're free from the limitations of 10%. We give now in proportion to our income, sacrificially and joyfully, and over and above what God's given to us because we're trying to show our love and appreciation for him. Jesus himself is the model for grace giving. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Did Jesus give 10% of himself to here on earth and said, well, I've done my legal obligation, I'm good to go. (laughs) Jesus gave up his riches to become poor for us. And so if we follow his pattern of giving, that means that we are going to generously invest our earthly riches into Christ's spiritual kingdom. When you give 10% to the church, maybe, maybe some of you are like, well, what do you do with that? Like, what? You want my money? What, do you want to, what are you going to do with it? We are not taking pastoral retreats to Vegas, okay? That's not what we do with it. What do we do when the money comes in? We, we compensate our pastors and staff so they can live on the gospel. We spend money on various ministries. We invest in missionaries and church planters. We keep our facility in a healthy and good condition. In other words, we're using our currency to spread the gospel here and abroad, So here's the question that you need to think about. Since Jesus gave up his riches to make you a qualified heir, how can you invest your riches to tell others about Jesus' sacrifice? If you're a believer, you've benefited from what Jesus has done. How can we then, who have been given so much, hold closely and tightly to the things that God's given to us? And building off this then, let's take it one step further. If we view our riches as spiritual and eternal, we will remember that our physical possessions don't ultimately matter. If your inheritance is in heaven and it's spiritual in nature, then why get so worked up about stuff here on earth? You see, your identity actually severs that, that, that greed that's in our hearts. And it helps us to be free from the snare of affluence and materialism. Because there's a whole swath of Christianity that says that the the purpose of the gospel is to make you healthy and wealthy and wise. That God's will for you on this earth is that you would have physical wealth and prosper so you can buy whatever you want and be comfortable. That just doesn't square with the teaching of Jesus. Because the Bible says that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The Bible teaches that the gospel is not the means to a financial windfall. It's the means to eternal life. 
Hebrews 10.34 is probably a little unfamiliar to us, but it, this verse lays out a radically different vision of prosperity. These believers were under persecution, and the writer says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods, knowing that they had a better and enduring possession for, ourselves, for themselves in heaven. Do we catch what this verse is saying? That these believers had their homes looted and pillaged. Thieves took their precious things, and it was all because of their faith in Christ. They lost everything. They were kicked out of Rome, I think is what's going on here in this context. And there are many believers in our world today, if you just read some of the things from, from like Voice of the Martyrs, for instance, and you read about people in, in the 1040 window uh, across Africa and Asia that come to faith in Christ in an Islamic or Hindu or Buddhist culture, and then their family kicks them out. They lose their house. They lose their job. They get their fields taken from them. Sometimes they lose their life for the sake of the gospel. If you got home from church today, and your home was looted, your furniture was smashed, expensive devices like TVs and computers and jewelry taken, your closets were emptied, how devastated would you be? That would be really hard. And yet, if you realize that you're a qualified heir with an eternal inheritance, you can actually joyfully accept the plundering of your goods because you have something that will last forever and it's far better and it's waiting for you in heaven. Now that is countercultural. And that's what, the, that's what the Bible teaches. The American dream is that he who dies with the most toys wins, but, but we are not identified with the American dream any longer. We are now identified with the riches of heaven. So how do you weaken the grip of materialism and the poison of greed? It's by remembering who you are. You're a qualified heir to spiritual riches beyond your wildest imagination and that your most valuable possessions are still to come. If Jesus is your treasure and he resides in heaven, then we should set our minds and our hearts on things above where our treasure is. There where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That's what it means to be a qualified heir. It's countercultural. Second, in Colossians 1.12, believers are saints. Saint simply means holy one. At salvation, we were made positionally holy by Christ. So the question that we have to ask is not, what do I do to earn holiness, but how do I live now that I am holy? How does this holiness shape the way that I live? And I think the biblical story of Joseph illustrates this in a way, so hang with me. When Joseph came before Pharaoh, I think this illustrates this. So we, we come, we're introduced to Joseph and he's receiving dreams for, from God. So wonderful thing, right? Well, his brothers hate him for it. His brothers then sell him into slavery. And then he gets picked up a little bit. He works hard for, for Potiphar, his master. And then Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of, of attempted rape. And he's thrown in jail. And there he serves his fellow prisoners joyfully. And things seem to be going well, and then he's forgotten. So really, at, at his lowest point, what is Joseph? Joseph is a slave from another country with a criminal record forgotten in jail. That's who Joseph is. He's a foreigner, slave, criminal record, forgotten. That's what he is. 
And then, through the providence of God, Pharaoh has a dream. They bring him in, in front of Pharaoh. He interprets Pharaoh's dream, gives Pharaoh some really good advice, and Pharaoh says, this is the guy that we want. He's right here. Pharaoh appoints him prime minister or grand vizier, whatever uh, title you prefer. And with one swift decision, Pharaoh gave Joseph an exalted position, a clean slate, and a new purpose. That's what holiness does for us. It gives us an exalted position, a clean slate, and a new purpose. Let's think about that. Pharaoh declared Joseph to be second in command, and there was no argument about that. Pharaoh's decree was determined and decided and done, and no one could say otherwise. When we come to faith in Christ, God, by decree, calls us holy. We don't gain holiness by our works, by our merits. You don't have to earn a holy standing before God. He freely gives it to you. And yet there are so many of us, myself included, that we go through the Christian life thinking that we have to just do good so that God will be favorable toward us. In the gospel, when we are made holy, that means that we are free from trying to earn God's favor by doing good things. God doesn't love you more on your good days and love you less on your bad. He loves you perfectly all the time because you're holy before him. And in a moment, we'll talk about how we respond to that. We don't just go and do whatever we want, Romans 6, but we do live for him. But our works don't gain us favor with him. We, are, we have to be free from that, that we are declared holy once for all. The second thing that holiness does as a, as a saint is give you a clean slate. Your record is wiped clean. In the eyes of the Egyptian law, who was Joseph? He was a slave with a criminal record. When Pharaoh appointed him, Joseph's past was wiped away. The wrongs done to him and the wrongs he was accused of both went away. And you may have had wrongs done to you or been accused of doing things you haven't done. Perhaps it's been a very bitter experience for you many years ago or you've been the victim of some crime or the victim of some circumstance or lost position or influence because someone has accused you of something that's been totally made up and it's not true. Joseph walked that road. But in Christ, victims are turned to victors. In the eyes of some people, Joseph was never more than a felon. Can you imagine Potiphar standing there in the court that day when Joseph comes out of jail and, and Pharaoh says, that's a great idea, you're second in command. He's going, I'm the guy that threw him there. <laughs> what do I do now? Joseph may have never been more than a felon to some, but in the eyes of Pharaoh, Joseph was his greatest find. And in God's eyes, Ephesians 2.10 says that you and I are his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in the image of God like him. The shame that we feel has been nailed to the cross. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, that Jesus endured the shame and went to the cross to bring us to God. Past trauma does not define our future because God has made us holy. And if that's you today, you can take comfort that you're declared holy, that that record that's in your past and in your mind is not held against you any longer. You can be free from it. And then third, Pharaoh gave Joseph a new purpose. Joseph went from having nothing on his calendar for the rest of his life. 
Yeah, are you free today? Hmm, let me check my calendar. Hmm, yep, I'm free. I can come see you, Pharaoh. He went from having nothing to do for the rest of his life to having a new purpose to live for. And when we become saints, our purpose now has changed. We become, we, uh, our, our purpose in life is to glorify God by reflecting Christ. And this purpose then leads to a new set of actions. We live holy lives now, not to gain standing before God, but because of our standing before God. We live holy lives to point others to Christ. We live to proclaim the praises of him that's called us from darkness to light. You see, living in sin is actually a contradiction for saints. How can holy people still live in sin? Sinning is more out of character for us than doing right is. The fact is that you are holy and God has called you to live a holy life. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 sums it up perfectly. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. So what did God call us to when we became righteous and holy in Christ? He called us to a life of holiness, not to live in sin, not to say, well, I'm saved, now I can do whatever I want. Wrong. We are called to live holy lives. And here's a principle that we all need to square with. You can be as holy as you want to be. You can be as close to God as you want to be. You can be as holy as you want to be. And if you aren't holy, that means that you're believing a lie that uncleanness and sin is more satisfying than holiness. Is anger more satisfying than patience? Is sexual lust more satisfying than purity? Is gossip more satisfying than edifying? Is complaining more satisfying than thanksgiving? And our flesh says yes to every one of those questions. Yes, it is. But our spirit says no. And so temptation is a battle of faith. Who, whose word are we going to believe? Are we going to believe in our hearts that, that sin is more satisfying to us? Or are we going to believe what God says that sin has to be resisted because knowing him and seeing him and loving him is far greater? How foolish would it be to drink toxic waste when fresh spring water is available? Yet how many of us as Christians do the same thing? We're content to drink the sewerage of sin when Jesus says, I am the living water, come to me. If you've grown lax in your battle against sin, repent. Cry out to the mercy of God. If you find yourself putting up with sin instead of fighting it, you're not living in holiness. You are positionally holy, but you're not living that out practically. How holy are you in practice? And when I talk about holiness, I'm not just talking about external standards. We can all look holy. We all are dressed pretty nice today. We all have our Jesus smiles on because it's Sunday. We look good. But holiness is far more about our hearts than it is our dress or our smile. And so the question we have to ask is, how holy am I? God sees the heart. Third, believers are people of the light. This is also in verse 12. So the whole text today is verse 12. Verse 12 refers to light. And verse 13 says that we're freed from the power of darkness. We're people of the light. Let me try to illustrate that with a man named Jack Barsky. Jack Barsky lived in the darkness for many years. Because first of all, Jack Barsky was not his real name. His name was Albrecht Dietrich. 
He was born in 1949 in East Germany. And the KGB recruited him as a spy when he was in college. He was deployed to America, to New York City, actually. He spied for 10 years from the late 70s through most of the 80s before going cold in 1988. And instead of being recalled back into Eastern Europe, he actually cut ties and stayed in America and tried to hide things. Well, he wasn't very good at that. And and his life was complicated. He had two families. He was married to two women at the same time. He married his girlfriend in East Germany in 1980 and had a son with her. And he married an immigrant woman in the U.S. in 1986 to help her get her green card. And they actually stayed together and he had two children with her. So he's literally married to two people at the same time. Neither Neither of them know that the other exists. Neither of them know exactly what he's doing. He said he tried to keep his two identities separate in his mind, trying to live the lie, but he he couldn't keep his life together. Since he had cut off contact with Moscow, the KGB told his German wife that he died, so she reported him missing and divorced him. His marriage in the U.S. fell apart. He divorced his second wife. And right around this same time, his shadowy life came to, to an end because the FBI found him. They arrested him. And called him in for questioning. And yet, amazingly, his being caught was was a fresh start of sorts. He cooperated with the FBI. He told them the truth. They they found that what he was saying lined up. And they let him go. There was no more looking over his shoulder. There was no more having a bag packed and ready to slip out of the country at a moment's notice. He, He didn't have to live in the shadow world of darkness and spy and espionage anymore. His exit from that world brought him from darkness to light. And at salvation, God transforms us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And there are three things that I just want to point out. There are more. Three things to consider. First of all, is we are to walk in the light. This is a simple application. Ephesians 5.8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk or live as children of light. That means that we forsake the darkness and we have nothing to do with evil. We are to be innocent concerning evil and wise concerning good. If we love the the deeds of dark, there's something wrong with our hearts. 1 John uh, John 1, 5 through 7 explains that when we live in the light, we will have deep fellowship with God because he is in the light. And when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another because we live in the light. And it it keeps going. It gets better and better. And when we walk in the light, we have full cleansing when we sin. And that full cleansing means that we can experience a clear conscience. A clear conscience. When we live in the light, we have nothing to hide. Life becomes simple in the light. You don't have to fear being exposed. There's no fear of tripping up or stumbling. You can enjoy the clear conscience that comes when walking in the light. Some of you don't have a clear conscience. There are people here today that have walked in hiding something. And no, I don't don't have a prophetic gift where I'm going to tell you what that is. It's just in a crowd this size, there are people that don't have a clear conscience. There are things that you've done or you've said that weigh on your heart. So what do you do? Do you keep trying to hide them? Do you keep going through life conflicted and, and, and torn and, and I've got to just keep hiding this and holding on to it? I'll let you in on a little secret. God sees already. He knows. 
and he wants you to confess your sin, to do what 1 John 5, 1, 7 says, to come to the light, to confess that, to make things right with a person you've offended, if that's, if that's your situation, and then you'll be free from that weight. It'll cost you something to come clean. Repentance always costs us something. But waiting will cost you even more. You see, sin has, has a, com- a compounding if effect, like compounding interest. The longer you wait to be clear of sin, the longer you wait to confess something, the more you'll pay out. A clear conscience is possible if you come clean. That's what our friend Jack Barsky did. The FBI caught him, so he was kind of forcibly, uh, he forcibly came clean. But his life was simplified. He didn't have to hide things from other people. He could just live. That can be your story today too. And let her see kind of a different track. When we walk in the light, when we live in the light, we can enjoy the Spirit's illumination because the Spirit doesn't speak to people who are holding out on God. If there's sin in your hearts that you're hiding, David says in Psalm 51, Psalm 139, God's not gonna speak to you. At salvation, the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of the unsaved to the light of the gospel. And the beautiful thing is that he continues this ministry of illumination even after we get saved. Have you ever been reading your Bible or listening to a sermon and all of a sudden things just clicked? Like, like you're in a dark room and all of a sudden, phew, the lights come on. You're like, oh, I get it. I see it. That's the illumination of the Holy Spirit. He enables you to understand truth. And as children of light, he opens our eyes more and more to show us the glory of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. That as we look at the the, the scriptures and we see Christ and we learn about him, the spirit of God opens our eyes so that we can perceive truth because to the natural person in our fleshly state, we cannot see truth. The spirit must open our eyes. So when you sit down to read your Bible, ask him to open your eyes. Don't start your devotional time by just jumping into whatever you're doing. Invite the spirit of God to open your heart. That's why you've heard me pray even today before, this, before the sermon begins, Spirit of God, come and open our eyes because we need him to do this. We need him to turn the lights on so that we can understand the scriptures. Well, Jack Barsky had many hurdles to overcome. And as he sorted through them, he soon realized that coming clean about his spying still didn't give him the peace that he so desperately deserved. His marriage, uh, both of his marriages, I guess, fell apart. His mother passed away thinking that he was dead in, in the Soviet Union. He had nothing, really. Family had forsaken him. And in his own words, he said this, there seemed to be no refuge for what had become a lonely soul. A few weeks later, after writing this, he saw peace and certainty in someone else. He had hired a new administrative assistant And he realized there was something different about her. And he said, how do you have peace? And her response was, Jesus gives me strength. And one thing led to another. And after several months, he visited church, got his questions answered, and he repented of his sin and trusted Christ as his Savior. He was born again. And when he placed his faith in Jesus, he received another completely new identity. Instead of being known as a Soviet spy, an IT manager, a failed father, a divorced man. He was a Christian, loved by God, a child of the light. 
And I would venture to say that probably most of us don't have as, as complicated a life as Jack Barsky. But at salvation, we experience the same profound transformation. Your identity is completely and irreversibly changed. And by the Spirit of God's help, we can live out our identity day by day. Let's strive to recognize who we are and then live that out by His grace. Let's pray together and ask for His help to do this. Father in heaven, thank you for changing us at our very core, for giving us, as the new covenant says, a heart that is soft, a heart of flesh, not of stone so that we can understand and receive spiritual truth. May we grasp who we are in Christ and then give us grace to live it out so that others would see, just like this administrative assistant was just living as a Christian and her testimony brought this man, Jack, to Christ. May we have the same testimony to live out who we are, to grapple with the implications of what Christ has done so that we will live as people that are saved that are born again, that are of the light, that are holy, and that are qualified. Give us grace, we pray, because we fail so much. But in your mercy, we know you will strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoy this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.